0: Uh, second thing I need you to pray for is uh, Friday, I'm going to be doing um, a memorial service for one of our men on Thursday night. I got a call um, on Monday and his 42-year-old son died unexpectedly, uh, leaving behind a wife and a little three-year-old boy. So let's be praying for uh, that family. as uh, It's the Knox family and we'll be doing a, a graveside on Friday. And just to be with them, it's a, as you can imagine, a shock to the system to find out that your 42-year-old son has died and uh, leaving behind a a wife and a child. So just be lifting up them uh, on Friday and lift up me as as I uh, do that service. Okay, so we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5, and we're not going to read chapters 4 and 5. I know you're disappointed. But we are gonna go through the whole thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's jam-packed, there's a lot in it, and so I wanna move fairly quickly. Um, I'm, I wanna give you uh, the main point, at least what I think is the main point, it's the title for the lesson, and it's that man is justified by faith. Now, most of us in the room would not argue with that, it's not new news to us that we're justified by faith. We've been talking about it for, what, five weeks now? But it's the theme of these two chapters, And it's also one of the main themes in this book. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because we live in a day, in a culture, just like Paul did, where this is under attack. You know, uh, as you go back and you read the history of the church and you read the early days of the church, even in uh, the book of Acts and the early letters of Paul and the others, you you find out that there was uh, always this... um, Conflict going on within the church around this issue of grace and faith and how how you get saved and how you get justified, and you end up with all kinds of aberrations. You end up with uh, legalism, right? Um, it's the opposite of grace is legalism, where I have to do everything, I have to earn my my favor with God, my right standing with God. You uh, end up with um, the opposite of that is is what's sometimes called hyper grace where you basically, it's all grace and I don't have to do squat and I just, you know, God's got it taken care of and I can sin and I can, he's, he's got to forgive me because that's the job that he's got. And so you end up with hyper grace, you end up with legalism and it, we give them all kinds of names, you know, anti, antinomian, antinomianism, which is basically just anti-law you, you know, we don't live under the law anymore. We don't have to worry about the law anymore. There's all kinds of aberrations and confusion that come with this topic. And, and the book of Romans deals with all of it. And that's why it's such an important book because it, more than any other book, it unpacks the gospel better and more clearly um, for us in terms of what is the gospel? What is this thing called salvation, justification, sanctification? And so... These two chapters, I, 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 this isn't in your notes because it kind of came to me late, but I just want to kind of give you an outline to, to give you uh, how it all fits together. And it really kind of goes like this. You've got three different parts. The first part is chapter four, and it's all about Abraham. And the reason he deals with Abraham is because he's, again, talking to an audience that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. And they're, they're, all, they're believers. But he's been talking to the Jews and he's been talking about the law and he's been talking about circumcision and what better person to go back and talk about than Abraham, who is the father of the Jews. He's the one they hold in real high esteem. And so he's going to go use him as an example of justification by faith, not works, which is kind of really going to throw them for a loop because they've always thought of Abraham as being justified by works. So he's going to use him and he represents the patriarchs. And if you go look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great hall of faith, it has all these different patriarchs, including Abraham. And in every section, it says, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith, Moses, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Enoch, over and over again, by faith, all the patriarchs live by faith. And so he's going to use Abraham. Then he's going to go in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and he's going, now let's talk about you, both Gentiles and circumcised, uncircumcised and circumcised, Jew, Gentile, let's talk about you. You're also justified by faith, not by works. And so, again, that's the theme of these two chapters. And he uses this past tense and future tense. He says we are reconciled. In other words, we have been made right with God. We have peace. And access to God, I have peace with God, access to God, and I have hope, future hope. And then he says, and we will be saved. So past tense, present tense, future tense, you will be saved. He's talking about glorification. And then the last part of chapter 5, he's going to talk about Adam and Christ. The first Adam, the second Adam. And we'll unpack these more, but Adam brought sin and death into the world. And Jesus Christ brought righteousness and life. And so that's kind of the flow of these two chapters as we go through them. We're not going to be able to cover everything, obviously, but it kind of gives you a good idea of where we're going as we move through these. Now in these two chapters, you're going to see contrasts and we're not going to, again, cover all of this, but he's going to talk obviously about faith versus works. He's going to talk about grace versus law, grace, legalism. He's going to talk about justification and condemnation, love versus wrath. The love of God, the wrath of God. Jesus versus Adam in chapter five. Eternal life and death. Jesus brought life. Adam brought death. Uncircumcision and circumcision. That's a theme he's been talking about the last few chapters. Gentiles and Jews, obviously. And then righteousness and sin. So you see in these two chapters, if you just go, if you read through them and just look for contrast, this is a lot of what you're gonna see. And he's juxtaposing these two themes All throughout the book. And then finally, the free gift available through Jesus Christ and Adam's trespass. He's going to put those two things up against one another. And so that's kind of where this is all going as we move through. So we start out chapter four in verse two, and he makes it real clear who he's talking about. He immediately says, for if Abraham was justified by works, so he's going to go straight to, let's go to the core. Let's talk about the most uh, significant figure in the Jewish history is Abraham. Why? Because he's the father of the Jewish nation. So he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, and what he's saying is, many of you, at least the Jews in the audience, think that he was justified by works because of the things that he did. And he's saying, no, if he was justified by works, he's got something to boast about. But what did he say in chapter three? Remember, he said, none of us have anything to boast about. We don't have a right to say, look at what I did for you, God. Look how great I am. So he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because he didn't do anything to earn favor with God. He didn't do any acts that God looked down and went, man, that is one sharp cookie. That Abraham guy, that Abram guy living in Ur, man, he's just a righteous guy. He, that's not how this happened. He chose him. What's amazing is he chose him before he was even a Jew. The Jewish people didn't exist. Ab- Abram was living in Ur of the Chaldees. And God chose him, not because he was special, not because he was righteous, not because he was good, not because he was godly. He just chose him. And out of him, he made a nation. So he has no reason to boast. But what does it say? He goes on and says, well, what does the scriptures say? Go back to the scriptures. Abraham believed God. He believed God and it was counted, reckoned to him as righteousness. Now let's look at these two words. This is we read this and we go, what's the big deal? But keep in mind the context, keep in mind the audience. It's made up of these Jewish Christians and they're sitting there and he's talking about their patriarch, their hero. It'd be like somebody slamming George Washington for us as Americans. You know, he's the father of our nation. Well, they're having a hard time with this and he says, no, he wasn't justified by his works, but by his faith. And it says that he believed God. And that word believe is pesteo, and it means to trust in, to have confidence in. He had confidence in. He put his trust in God. His hope. Everything was based on what God had told him. And we're going to dig into that and see what that means. But he believed in God. And it was counted to him... As righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Greek word here is reckon, credited, imputed. So he believed in God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Not, I did some stuff for God, and God saw me as righteous, and therefore chose me. And you may sit there and go, well, who cares? Well, you should care. Because again, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're trying to tell people about how to get right with God, one of their biggest blocks is going to be, but what do I need to do? How do I I fix myself before I come to God? And what he's going to tell us in these chapters and through the rest of the book is God doesn't ask you to fix yourself before you come to him. You don't have to become righteous to be deemed righteous by God. And that goes against everything in, in, in the way we think. And, and sometimes we treat people like that. Like if somebody comes to us and says, I struggle with a particular sin, well, we, we want them to get their act together. Well, stop doing it. Just stop doing it, and then, you know, then you can become a believer. Well, no, that's not how this works. We want them to come to faith in Christ in their sin so that God can help them with their sin there's a huge difference. Abraham's right standing was unearned and undeserved is what Paul's trying to say. He believed in God and it was counted, reckoned, imputed as righteousness. And it's totally the opposite of earning or doing it through works. Now, this is what gets really interesting to me. He says, Abraham believed, had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you and I could read that and some of us do read it and we think, okay, what was counted as righteousness? Because he says, and it was counted as righteousness. What's the it referring to? Is it his belief? Is it his faith? And this is really kind of interesting when you start thinking about it. We're not saved because of our faith. Whoa, wait a, Ken, you're a heretic. We're, we're saved by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But you got to be really careful with this because this is where we get kind of off-kilter and confused. We're not saved because of our faith. In other words, his faith did not save him. He wasn't saved on the basis of his faith. And again, this is where we mess up faith because we turn faith into a commodity or a work. That I have to have faith and I have to have a certain kind of faith or a certain amount of faith or it will not work. I don't have enough faith. His faith is not what saved him. We're saved by the object of our faith. Now, let me give you an illustration that, in all illustrations break down, but I was trying to think of a way to, to get my, my head around this where I could explain it. If you were drowning... You're out in the ocean, you're away from the shore, there's nothing around you, you're drowning, you know you're drowning, you can't swim, you can't save yourself, and somebody showed up and thro- threw you a life preserver. And you said, I believe that life preserver will save me. Is it your belief that will save you? What's going to save you? The life preserver. It's the object of your faith that will save you, not the belief. See, I can give you a $20 bill and you can believe that you can buy things with that $20 bill. But is it your belief that gives the $20 bill its value? No, it's the value given to that $20 bill by our government, which is getting less and less. But it's not your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, all throughout this, it's always going to point back to where is your belief placed? Who is it placed in? What are you hoping in? And so in this case, he's using Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the Hebrew people, to say his faith was in God, he believed in God, and it was counted To him is righteousness. In other words, God said, your belief in me, your dependence upon me is what saves you, is what counts as righteousness. It's not his works. Don't turn faith into a work. Don't, Don't make faith what saves you. It's God who saves you. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in his ability to save. And then he uses this illustration. He says, now to the one who works, you have jobs, most of you. Some of you may have more than one job. But you work and you get paid, right? And he uses that as as an illustration. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as what is due. It's owed to you. I work, you pay me. I don't work, you don't pay me. But he says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies God... The ungodly, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you work, your wages are not a gift. They're not given to you. Your your boss can't come to you and go, Well, here's a gift. I know you work 60 hours and I just want to give you this gift. And you're going to go, No, I worked for that. It's not a gift. You owe it to me. He says, Salvation is not that way. The one who does not work but believes, puts his trust in, his hope in, his faith in God, as the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. But again, it's the faith, the object of the faith, right? It's God. I trust God. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. It's not my faith that justifies me. It is God. It's God who saves me. It's God who redeems me. It's God who sanctifies me. And I have to believe that every day of my life, where I get twisted off and probably you get twisted off is when I start thinking, I have to do this. Now I want to be real careful and we'll get more into this as we move along in the book, because he's going to take us to the point of then what, do we have to do anything? Are we obligated to do anything? Well, yes, we are. We we are to live righteous lives. We are to live godly lives. We're to pursue righteousness, godliness. We're to live like Christ, put off the old, put on the new, put on Christ. We do have an obligation, but it is not to save us. It is to show God our gratitude for all that he's done. And it is also because we're living in obedience to his will and to the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We should want to be like Christ. We should want to pursue godliness. And what we're going to see as we move through this book is that our goal, guys, should always be future-oriented. My attention, my focus should always be in the future. What's the future for me as a believer? It's glory. It's heaven. It's redemption. It's a glorified body. It's to be with Christ. It's to be with God the Father. It is heaven. That should be my goal. That should be my my objective. And I should want to live with that in mind, which means I should want to pursue that lifestyle now. Will I ever reach it in this life? No. Will I ever become completely righteous in this life? No. But it should be my driving motivation is that's my goal. That's the objective. And that's what I want to look like. And God has given me the power and the resources to accomplish it through his word and through the Holy Spirit and through the body of Christ. So it's his faith is counted as righteousness. God counts righteousness apart from works. And and you may think, well, you know, man, he's belaboring this point. He's he's riding this horse to death. But guys, I'm telling you, it's still alive and well today. You know, when I write my blog, I I get people who write me back. Some people say I like it. Some people say you're a heretic. Um, I have one, one group that's been writing me off and on since I've been blogging on Romans and now I'm in Hebrews and I could not figure out where they were coming from. And they kept saying, you know, they were actually taking parts of my blog and they were posting it on their blogs and I was getting pingbacks, and I was like, who are these people? And they were not agreeing with anything I said. They were not agreeing with this teaching about faith and not works. And so I started doing some research. I started going to their blogs and I discovered that they're, um, they're called Christadelphians. Uh, I think they're a cult. Here's why I think they're a cult because they don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in this, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They don't believe Jesus was the son of God. They believe Jesus was a man who lived a righteous life as a model for you and I, that we too can live a righteous life and that we can become totally righteous in this life. Not on the basis of the blood of Christ, the work of Christ, it's all based on our work. They are very, very much works oriented. And I finally wrote them and I said, I think we don't agree. And they said, we don't agree. And I said, I think you're a heretic and you think I'm a heretic. And they said, you're most certainly right. We do think you're a heretic. And they're alive and well. I don't know how many Christadelphians there are, but there's quite a few websites out there, and there are other groups like them out there. So this is alive and well today. And you're probably, you have within your sphere of influence people who believe these things. Or if they don't believe it now, if they get exposed to it, they will believe it. And they will begin to try to earn righteousness with God through their works, through their effort. So he's belaboring it. He's, he keeps going back to this point because it is huge. It's massive when it comes to our walk with Christ. He says, if we say that faith was counted, Abraham as righteousness. That's what he's trying to tell these people. It was his faith. It was his belief in God. And he says, how was it counted to him? How was it reckoned to his account? What happened? And this is another important point because of his audience. He says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? Because again, what do they put a lot of their stock in? I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I've been circumcised. I've got the law. I've got the temple. I've got the sacrificial system. And he goes right to this issue of circumcision. And he says, was he counted righteous by God, deemed righteous by God before or after he was circumcised? And, and, and I, I think for them, it was almost like a trick question. And he says, it was not after he was circumcised, in other words, circumcision was a work. It was a thing you did to your body in obedience to God. He says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. So it's not tied to a circumcision. It's not tied to something he's done. It says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The circumcision was a seal or a symbol of His right standing before God. So again, by faith, not by works. And here's where he talks to the whole audience. To make him, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, Gentiles, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That includes you and I in this room. Why is he our father just like he is the father of the Jews? Well, he's their father by the flesh. He's our father by virtue of our common belief in God, our common reliance upon God. It all goes back to belief. And the second point is to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father, Abraham. So what's his point? Gentiles, Jews, look at Abraham. He's your father by virtue of faith, not works. Jew, you may be able to draw your family tree down from Abraham, and you may be able to point to your circumcision, not literally, but figuratively, and you may be able to brag about the fact that you have the law and all these wonderful things, but it it doesn't matter because it's all going to go back to what? Faith. Believing in God. Trusting in God. Faith is always the key. Faith is the point of this book. It's what he's trying to tell you and I. It's got to be based on faith. And then he's going to go back to what's the faith about. See, he believed God. What did he believe from God? He talks about the promise. He says, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, Abraham lived long before, 430 years before the law was even given. And yet he was a man of faith. What was his faith in? It wasn't keeping the law. It wasn't circumcision. He hadn't been circumcised yet. So what was it about? What was this promise? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Here's what it says. He says, go from your country, God speaking to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He's in Haran at this point. And God's telling him, I'm gonna do something. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now keep in mind, he's living in Haran. He knows nothing about the land of Canaan. He's never been there. There's no indication that he's ever heard from God before. And God basically says, pack it up, leave your homeland and move. And he didn't tell him where he was going. He just says, go from your country to the land I will show you. Now, I'm wired to go, where is that? Can you show me on a map? No, just, just pack and I'll, I'll lead you. You'll get there. Just get ready. Yeah, but I want to know where. What, do, what kind of clothes do I need to wear? You know, do I need to bring shorts, you know, sand? What, what do I need to bring? Is it a cold climate, warm climate? Just kind of help me out here. God. Just get up and go. And what did he do? He got up and he went. By faith, trusting God, leaning on God, not knowing where he was going. And, and he, he says, for if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is, is void. See, it has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with circumcision. It has everything to do with belief in the promise of God, trusting God. What does this have to do with you and I? See, we have been given a promise by God that by placing our faith in Jesus Christ that we will be saved, we will be sanctified, and we will be glorified, and someday we will spend eternity with him. Anybody ever been to heaven? No. Anybody really know what it looks like? Streets of gold, you know... Cherubims hanging on clouds. Do we really know what it looks like? I have no idea, but I am I'm going there. Based on what? Having seen it, based on the word of God and my faith in God, the trustworthiness of God. Same thing as Abraham. It's based on belief, not based on the law. Otherwise, faith becomes null and void, worthless. If anybody in this room can earn their way to heaven, everything Paul wrote is wrong. If any of us can earn favor with God by our good works, our good deeds, then faith is null and the promise is void. Because what did God say? I will take you to a land. I will make you great. I will do these things. And what's interesting in the life of Abraham, what did Abraham immediately, almost immediately start to do? Trust in Abraham. When there's a famine in the land, what do you do? He runs to Egypt, gets himself in trouble. When his wife is barren and he can't have a kid, what does he do? Well, his wife comes up with the idea, hey, take my maidservant. I always love this story because Abraham didn't argue, right? Hey, honey, I got this great idea. I can't have children, but you need an heir because God said you're going to have an heir, so why don't you go into my maidservant? And he's like, honey, great idea. You got any more? Got any more maidservants? You know, want to increase our odds, you know? No, he did it. He immediately started trying to do things his way. And and what's easy to do is to say, well, then he didn't have faith. No, he really did have faith that God was going to accomplish what he said. He just thought God needed a little bit of help. See, why was he going into his his wife's maidservant? Because he needed an heir because God had promised to make him great. And I can't be great and I can't have a multitude of nations come from me if I don't have somebody to bear more children. So I'm going to help God out. See, faith always ends up in conflict with what? Works. He still believed God, but he thought God needed help. Sometimes you and I believe God, but we think he needs our help. And that's when our works get really screwed up. And we need to always go to him and say, God, you said I'm going to have heirs. He even went to God. Remember, he said, I can't have a kid. We're both old. She's barren. We can't have a kid. How about Eleazar, my servant? And God goes, no, that's not how this is going to work. You're going to have a kid through Sarah. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but she's old and she's barren. Yeah, God knew. And he was learning how to have faith in God, how to rest in God, how to trust in God. That's why it depends on faith. This life on this planet always is going to be based on faith, trusting God. It's important that we understand that, that the promise may rest on the grace of God and be guaranteed to all the offspring, both Jew and Gentile. It's got to be based on God's grace, not your work. God doesn't owe us anything. And as soon as we get into the thought pattern that somehow God owes me anything, I have totally missed the point of grace. And I've, I've negated and devalued the gift that he's given me, the death of Christ on the cross. If I think that somehow he owes me something, And there's an interesting phrase in verse 18. It says, in hope, he believed in hope. Sounds like something Yoda would say. In faith, he, he, in hope, he believed in hope. What was he hoping in? This is really interesting because it goes on and says, he was hoping that God would make him the father of many nations. That was the key to everything else coming true. He had to have kids. He had to have grandkids, great grandkids. He was hoping for something yet future that God would make him the father of many nations. And he hoped against hope. And it basically, it could be translated this way, against all human hope, Abraham believed God. You ever felt hopeless? You ever felt like this isn't working? This thing called Christianity doesn't really work. It's not working for me. And you start to lose hope. That's when we need to keep hoping. We need to hope against hope. We need to keep hoping, even when we feel like things are hopeless. We need to, Keep that future focus. It's like when Peter started walking on the water, Jesus called him out of the boat. He starts walking on the water. The storm's going crazy. He's looking at the Lord. He's walking on the water. And then as soon as he looked at the storm, what happened? He sank. We got to keep our focus where it belongs, our faith in the right place. I love this from Charles Wesley. He says, in hope against all human hope, self-desperate believe faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. Hope is looking out at what God has said and God has promised. Don't you know that Abraham all along the way was going, man, this is not working out like I thought it would. He said he was going to take me to a land, but he never really lived in the land. He never had a city. He never had a home. He lived in tents. He lived for years and years with a barren wife and a A decaying older body and going, when am I going to have any of this come true? And what did he have to do? Keep hoping, keep going to the promise, keep looking to the future. See, our problem is we focus on present circumstances and lose sight of the future promise. This world is not all there is. You know, when I sat down last night with this family, having lost their 42 year old son and talked to his mom and no mother should ever have to bury your son, whether he's four or 42 and they're weeping and they're trying to tell stories and they're crying and guys, I long to never have to sit in a room with anybody else and do that. I long for heaven. I long for the fulfillment of God's plan. This world is not all there is. That is the result of, of the sin in this world of the fallen nature of this world. Death is a reality as he'll talk about in this chapter. So in hope, he believed against hope. He kept his focus on the right thing because God said, so shall your offspring be. That was part of the promise. And this is where it gets really interesting. Genesis fifteen five. God brought him outside on another occasion. He says, look at the stars. Just look at the stars. Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He had nothing. He had no kids. He had nothing. Nothing had been fulfilled yet, and he's still wondering, when is this going to happen? And it says, and he believed God in the very next verse, and he counted it to him as righteousness. See, God has promised you guys a lot of things. He's promised you heaven. He's promised to sanctify you. He's promised to give you peace and joy. And you're sitting there going, when is it going to come? Because it doesn't seem to be working. You got to keep hoping in the future promises of God. And it is that belief in the trustworthiness of God that will be counted to you as righteousness. Trusting in God, resting in him, not your works, not your effort. It says he believed. And Paul explains something very important in this passage over in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is really the companion book to Romans. And and they ought to be read together because they really go together. Listen to what he says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. So he's making a commentary on Genesis. Listen to what he says. It doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. It's a singular word, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what is he saying? The promise that God made to Abraham included the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, did Abraham know that? Some commentators believe he did. I don't think he did. I don't think he knew about the Messiah. I don't think he knew about Jesus, but he knew that there was someone coming in his lineage who would fulfill the rest of these promises. He hoped in that. He believed in that. He knew that this was a singular word. He knew that there was someone coming. He didn't know the full extent, but he believed in that coming. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the same for us today. We believe that someday Jesus Christ is coming back. If he's not coming back, let's go do something else, right? If Jesus isn't coming back, I got a few chores I could do. I got some broken things around the house. I got some, you know, I could go have fun somewhere. But I believe he's coming back as part of the promise of God. See, he was telling him Jesus would be the means by which the promise would be fulfilled. And he had to hope for it without ever seeing it, as Hebrews 11 tells us. The nations would be blessed through him. Isn't it interesting that he says, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Well, wait a minute. He was going to make him the father of the Jews. But see, when Jesus came, what happened? It now included everybody. See, it's interesting he says, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. That couldn't happen from the Jews because every Jew bore a Jew. It had to come when Jesus came, when Jesus made the, the gospel available to everyone who believes, which automatically makes us what? Children of Abraham. Because he believed and we believe and we share that in common. If you go down to chapter eight, Paul says this Those whom he, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are brothers. We are brothers in Christ. We are brothers with Christ. We are in the family of God. We are heirs, sons of God. We are in the family of Abraham. Why? Because of our common belief. You go all the way to the book of Revelations. Listen to what it says. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, speaking to the Lord, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, Jesus will be the ultimate fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, and he believed it. Never saw it, but he believed it. How about this? Chapter 7, Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, this is how the story ends. And I have to believe and you have to believe that this is part of the promise of God, even to us, that someday we will be there as a part of that great multitude. But see, we live right here. We live in the midst of confusion. We live in the midst of chaos. We live in the midst of sin, but we have to continue to believe. And it says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Does that mean he never doubted? No, he doubted. Does that mean he didn't take things into his own hands? Yes, he did. But he kept on believing. He kept his focus. You will doubt. You will fear. You will fail. You will make mistakes. You will sin. But you got to keep looking out at the future just like Abraham did. It was his belief, his belief in future promises that was counted him as righteousness. See, if you're thinking you're going to get your best life now, and that's a great title for a book. If you think you're going to get your best life now, you miss the point. Your best life is to come. And if you lose that future focus, you miss the whole point of what it means to be a son of God, a child of God, an heir of the kingdom of God. It was counted to him as righteousness. When it was said to Abraham, it, it, that includes us. It is our belief and our trust and our confidence in God, those who believe in him, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it is that that has counted us as righteousness. And so in chapter 5, he's going to go into this, and I'm going to definitely run out of time this morning, but he's going to go into the fact that, therefore, speaking to you and I, we have been justified. We have been made right with God. How? By faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a right relationship with God. You have peace with God, access to God. You have hope. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ did. Through him, he says. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So I'm going to end with this this morning. And I apologize um, that I'm not going to get through this whole thing. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, listen to what it says. This is his, not definition, his description of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Where's your hope this morning? What are you hoping in? Our hope has to be future-oriented. Our faith has to be future-oriented. See, I think we live way too often with our faith focused on this world. And we got to get it here. We demand it here. Fix this. Give me this. Improve this. Make my life easier. Make my life better. But our faith has to be future-oriented because otherwise it doesn't matter. How will that family that I met with last night survive Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the rest of the year? Faith in what? That their son, who is a believer, is with God, and they will see him again one day. The mother asked me, with tears running out of her eyes, she goes, how does anybody cope with something like this if they don't have that hope? I said, I have no idea. See, if your faith is not future-oriented, it says things hoped for, things not seen. Abraham was told, go, and he went. Abraham was said, I'm going to give you a land. He never lived in it. Abraham was said that I'm going to make you a great nation. He never saw it happen. Abraham never got the chance to see the majority of the fulfillments of the promises that God had made to him, but he believed. Because he was waiting for something future. He was waiting for something greater. He was okay with not seeing it in his lifetime, and he died without seeing it, Hebrews tells us. But he kept on believing. Why? Because he knew that God was faithful. See, if you don't have future-oriented faith, you will lose hope. You will lose your direction. You will run out of steam in this life. So, here's your discussion question. Why is it important for our faith to have a future orientation? What difference would it make in your life and my life if we live with our hope on eternal life? And I'm telling you, and I don't mean to offend you, but I think most of us don't live with our focus on eternal life. We have our focus on temporal life. Heaven's like, you know, some kind of icing on the cake. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm going to heaven someday, but man, I want heaven on earth. I I want my best life now. I want to live well. I want to enjoy everything. I want the gusto here. I want health here. I want everything here. I want finances here. I want peace here. I want joy here. And God has promised many of those things to us. And it's not wrong to desire those things, but if you lose your focus, see Abraham, when he got into trouble is when he lost the focus on the future and he started trying to help God out in the here and now. How about Ishmael? How about my wife's maidservant? Hey God, I can make it happen faster than you can He didn't know that God's future plan involved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting. So, why is it important for our faith to have a future orientation? Father, I pray for the men this morning as they talk around the tables that you would guide their conversation, that you would prompt them to be open and honest, that your Holy Spirit would work mightily, that they would let down their guard, let down their barriers, their attempt to hide things. And Father, just be open and honest that we do too often live without a future orientation, living for eternity. We live for the here and now. So Father, bless the times around the table, guide, direct, and speak mightily. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.